Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's free resources, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Paul urged believers to live a life that honored the Lord, and though the Thessalonian church was heavily persecuted, he did not pray for them to have an easier life, but rather he asked God to increase their love for one another and for everyone else. He prayed for their hearts to be strengthened so that they would live a blameless and holy life. He knew that it was important for them to live in contrast to the immoral culture around them, and he urged them to represent Christ well and to win the respect of outsiders through the way in which they lived. Paul repeatedly reminded them that Christ will return because he knew that truth would help them to persevere. But with all this talk about Christ's return, Paul was anxious that the Thessalonians and others have a good knowledge of the events surrounding the second coming of Jesus. And that will be the main focus of our text today as we continue in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Before we go and study what Paul wrote to them, however, However, it may be beneficial to first set the scene by looking at a few other scriptures concerning the return of Christ. In many places in the Gospels, Jesus himself promised that he would come back again. He said, for example, in John 14 verses 1 through 3, that upon his death, he was not only going to prepare a place for his people, but that he would return for them. Let me read that to you. Don't Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Additionally, when Jesus ascended into heaven, as recorded in the book of Acts, angels announced to those who watched him leave that Jesus would one day return in the same manner that he had gone. Acts 1, 10 through 11 tells us they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus himself promised that his eventual return would be very evident to all when it happened. Referring to himself as the Son of Man, which was a messianic title from the Old Testament, Jesus declared in Matthew 24 verses 27 to 28, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. I know that that phrase, wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather, may seem strange, but that was a common expression at the time, meaning something would be very noticeable. Think about it. In the desert, if anything died, the vultures would swoop in, making it very obvious. Christ's second coming is also going to be obvious 
because everyone will know about it when it happens. That being said, though, the Bible also teaches that Christ's return will be unexpected. No one knows the exact day or time that he will come back, but we may be able to discern when his return is close. In Matthew 24, Jesus said that just as you can tell when a fig tree is going to blossom and fruit, there will also be signs by which we can anticipate his return. However, referring to himself again as the Son of Man, he then went on to say in Matthew 24, verse 36 to 42, But about that exact day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Notice what the Lord says, though, when he returns, two men will be working in a field or two women will be pounding grain. One will be taken and the other left. Apparently, those who have Christ as their Lord will be caught up while the unbelievers will be left behind. This is something that is known as the rapture. The word rapture is not specifically mentioned anywhere in Scripture, but but when Paul talks about this event in First. Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17, he reveals that those believers who are still alive at that time that Christ returns, will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and they will be with the Lord forever. In that passage, Paul uses a Greek word, harpazo, for caught up. And when that word is translated into Latin, it became rapio. It is from the Latin word rapio that we get the English word rapture. It too means to be caught up or to be snatched away. Though we're not finished with the other scriptures yet, let us turn briefly to our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 18, where Paul addresses this issue. It's really important for us to understand that many of the people who were around at the time Jesus rose from the dead did expect him to return for his followers, his church, in their lifetime. But as the years slipped by and those first generation believers started to die, others in the church, such as the Thessalonians, for example, began to worry that either Christ had returned and that they'd somehow missed his second coming, or that those who had passed away already would not be able to share in Christ's glory when he came back. So Paul found it necessary to reassure the Thessalonian believers about their Christian loved ones who had already died. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.13. 
Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. When a person believes the good news about Jesus and entrusts themselves to Christ, a union is begun that nothing can break, not even death. Paul speaks of those believers who had passed away as if they had fallen asleep. And if you think of it, that really is a good comparison. All people have spirits and we all have bodies and we know that when a person falls asleep their body rests but their spirit continues. The same is true of us in death for though our bodies may cease to function the spirit of a person is eternal and they live on. Paul wants us as believers to understand that though we may grieve the passing of a loved one, if they've trusted in Jesus, we should not grieve for them as those who have no hope. For just as Christ died and rose again, we have the assurance from Christ himself that death will not be able to hold those who belong to him either. Now, We'll get back to our text in a moment, but I need to address something here. If you're like me, you may wonder what happens when we die and our spirit separates from our body. To answer that, you may want to look at Luke chapter 23 verses 39 to 43 later. In Luke 23, as Jesus hung on the cross, two criminals were on crosses beside him and one of them cried out to Jesus for mercy. We can be sure that this criminal had lived a life that was really far from God. He knew that he deserved judgment and he acknowledged that he deserved to die for his sins. But if you go on and read the account, he also recognized that Christ, the innocent one, ruled a kingdom that surpassed death. So, casting himself on Christ's mercy, the man appealed for the help that only Jesus could give. Facing imminent death, there was no opportunity for the thief to get down from his cross to do some good works. There was nothing that he could do to try and earn God's favor. The only thing he could do was to cast himself on the sinless one's mercy. And in truth, that was all that was really necessary because Jesus reassured him, declaring, Truly, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, each word of that sentence is important. Christ answers the man first by saying truly. That word was only ever used at the beginning of a sentence to emphasize the unquestionable nature of what was about to be said. The Greek word used here for today 
is semeron, meaning this very day. And Jesus says that the man will be with him and that they will be in paradise, which is used in scripture as a description of the place where God is. For those who are willing to acknowledge their sin and cast themselves on Christ's mercy, this brief sentence uttered by Jesus on the cross helps us to understand so much about what happens when we die. Today means that immediately, at the very moment of our death, we will be with him. Being with him means that we will have unbroken fellowship with Christ, never to be separated from him. Where he is we will be. And in paradise tells us that that will be in the beautiful home, the dwelling place of God where he will welcome us and be with us forever. Paul himself said in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 6 through 8 that when our spirit is absent from our body, it is immediately present with the Lord. But if our spirit goes immediately to be with Jesus upon death, What then happens to our bodies? We all know that without the spirit, the body is planted in the earth where it begins to decay. But when Christ returns, there will not only be the rapture of living believers, there will also be something known as the resurrection of the righteous dead, where those who have died believing in Christ will receive new and glorious bodies. Paul also spoke to the church in Corinth about this and said in 1 Corinthians 15 that we should think of the body as if it is a seed that is planted. Imagine a wheat seed that gets buried, planted in the ground. The new life that comes from it is the same as what was planted. However, it is different. It is more glorious. So too, our earthly bodies will be transformed in the resurrection and the rapture to be like Christ's glorified body. So what do we know then about the kind of body Jesus had when he rose from the dead? Well, it certainly had similarities to his earthly body. The doctor Luke describes Christ's appearance to the disciples after he rose from the dead in Luke 24, 36 through 43. And he says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I my Myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. So Jesus could be recognized by the marks on his hands and feet. He had a body made of flesh and bones and he could eat, and yet there were differences, the most notable being that he was not bound by the usual laws of physics. For example, he was able to enter a room even though the door was locked. John 20 verse 19 describes how on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. 
You know, I'm really touched about how many times Jesus would speak peace to them, knowing how startled the disciples would be at what they now saw he could do. And that's the kind of body that we will receive also. Those who died having faith in Christ will return with him in spirit at his second coming, and it is then that they will be united to their resurrected bodies in all of their glory. And those Christ followers who are still alive on the earth at that time, they will be caught up to be with Christ in the air. And as they are, their bodies will also be changed into more glorious ones. According to Paul, um, he says in verse 50 through 53 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality clearly from this all believers whether resurrected or raptured will receive imperishable eternal bodies so with that as our background then let's go back and look at Paul at what Paul wrote to the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. God has promised that those who have died or fallen asleep in Christ shall immediately be with the Lord where he is, and so we need not grieve as those who have no hope. And then when Christ returns, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. He says in verse 15 that according to the Lord's own promise, we who are still alive at the Lord's second coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, the believers who are alive at Christ's return will not be any more important than those who had already died. We will have no advantage over them. 
but Christ's return is going to be remarkable. There will be the sound of angelic voices as well as the trumpet call of God. The Lord himself will come down from heaven and as he does, he will give a loud command for the dead to rise and those believers whose bodies had been planted in the ground will receive their resurrected body and after that, the living believers will be caught up together with them in the clouds, meeting the Lord in the air. And at the trumpet call of God, the living believers' bodies will also be changed in the twinkling of an eye to be like Christ's resurrected body. And whether we can fully understand this right now or not, Paul wants us to remember that in this way, we will be with the Lord forever. And we need to encourage each other about this while we wait for the day. Paul then goes on in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, declaring now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, woman and they will not escape. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Paul refers to the second coming of Christ here as the day of the Lord, which was a well-known Old Testament reference to the day of God's final judgment on the earth. And he reminds them of the fact that though it was expected, it would come on people as a surprise, rather like a thief in the night, while people still believed that they had plenty of time. Verse 4, but you brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night nor to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the Day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God, Paul goes on to give his friends in Thessalonica some final instructions and some valuable advice that's equally relevant to us today. Verse 12, now, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. Live in peace with each other, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. He calls them to respect their leaders and to hold them in high regard, not for who they are, as much as for the work that they do for the Lord. He asks that they live in peace with each other because he knows full well that according to Christ, a house divided will not be able to stand. 
He also highlights those in the church who may need some special attention. And interestingly, the Greek word he uses for those who are idle was usually used of a soldier who had quit his position. And Paul says that those people should be warned of the danger that they're in having walked away from Christ and the work that he called them to. He also said that they were to encourage the timid, and the word he uses for timid or fearful literally meant those who who. And the word he used for timid or fearful literally meant those whose souls were small. In every church group, there are those who instinctively fear the worst. But in every community, there should also be those who are brave and who help others to be brave as well. Paul urges that we help the weak. We're literally to hold on to them so that they do not drift away. And probably the most difficult of all, we're to be patient with everyone. As those who follow Jesus, we're not to take revenge. We cannot pay back wrong for wrong, but rather we should try to be kind not only to other Christians, but to everyone else as well. As Paul said elsewhere in Romans 12, 12, we are not to be overcome by evil, but rather we are to overcome evil with good. Paul then goes on to outline the three characteristics of a genuine church, saying in verses 16 through 18, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. True Christianity is not a depressing thing. Though we may face trials that are extremely difficult, even so we are able to have joy in Christ's presence. Genuine believers know the value of prayer and they also know the value of thankfulness in all circumstances because they can trust God's will for them knowing that no matter what happens, they're safe in Christ Jesus. Paul then goes on to warn the Thessalonians not to reject the gifts of the Holy Spirit when he says in verse 19, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything, hold to the good, avoid every kind of evil. God is a God who speaks to his people, whether that is through his word preached or through messages given by prophetic word. The duty of the Christian is to know God's word themselves so that they can test everything that is said. We are to be discerning, holding on to that which is good and avoiding every kind of evil. And as we operate in this way, we will see the Holy Spirit work in our hearts so that we will become the church that we were always meant to be. As he concludes this letter to his friends, Paul ends with his prayer for them, saying, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So Paul commends his friends to God, asking that every part of them, their bodies, their souls, and even their spirits, be guarded by God and kept blameless blameless for Christ's return. And Paul knows that because God who called them is faithful, he will do it. 
Verse 25, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul was never above asking others for help. As a great minister for Christ, he knew that he needed their prayers and their support to effectively carry out the mission that God had given him to do. He sent God's people a holy kiss of affection and asked that they make sure to share his letter with all. And because he knew how grace had transformed his own life, Paul concluded, as he so often did, with a blessing of grace upon them. Paul had encouraged the Thessalonians for their faithfulness, but he also challenged them to continue to grow. He knew that if they focused on the certainty of Christ's return, it would give them the strength to persevere despite their trials and persecution. And it is no different for us today. We may not be able to control the actions of those around us, but we can control our own actions. What will help is knowing that we must endure only a little while longer before the Lord will appear, knowing that when he does, he will judge all people. However, those who have trusted in Christ are not appointed for wrath in the end. Rather, we shall be saved because of Christ's blood that is upon us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for all you've said to our hearts through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Lord, thank you that we need to keep Christ's return in our minds as we face trouble in this life. Help us not to be idle, to be timid or weak, Rather, help us to be loving and patient, not paying back wrong for wrong, but rather, Lord, overcoming evil with good. Let it all be done to the glory of Christ's name and for the extension of his kingdom. It is in Jesus' name we pray and we say, Lord, Maranatha, come quickly. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.